Good morning and welcome to Yonville Community Church Online. Uh, my name is Dan Bidwell, Senior Pastor here, and uh, it's such a special privilege to welcome you to our church family. Uh, we have members who've been with us for a long time and uh, new members who are joining us uh, just recently and perhaps even today for the first time. Uh, wonderful to be on the Christian journey with you. And uh, we'd love to know how that's going, uh, especially as we can't be together face to face. So once you hit the Connect card button for us, uh, let us know what's going on, how we can pray for you. Uh, make sure you're signed up to our e-news so that you get all of the information about what's going on at church at the moment and so we can stay in touch with you. Uh, this morning we're continuing to uh, think through those early chapters of the book of Genesis, those foundational chapters about who we are and how God's made us and, and what we're like in the world. And uh, I'm going to bring a sermon in just a minute about uh, what it is to sin. A uh, bit of a tricky topic, uh, but praying that that is something that uh, helps you to draw near to God as you examine your own heart. Uh, we're going to sit back and hear God's word now. Um, so uh, get yourselves ready, uh, maybe open your Bible, uh, open your Bible app, and uh, let's put this time aside for God for the next 20-something minutes. My name's Joanna Bidwell. Please join with me as I read our Bible reading, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
Well, at our house, we love cooking shows on television. Uh, one of our favorites is MasterChef. And on MasterChef, there are all kinds of elimination challenges, but there's one elimination challenge that always gets our family fired up, and it's the challenge where the contestants have to uh, taste a particular dish, and then they have to name one of the ingredients in it. And so they sniff it, and they smell it, and, and you know they think about it, and they agonize over it, and then they have to say uh, one of the ingredients. And uh, whoever gets it wrong first goes into elimination. Now, of course, a mystery dish is always very complex, uh, something Asian or an Indian curry or some very elaborate dessert, something built with layer upon layer of subtle flavors. And inevitably, somebody eventually gets it wrong. Well, our Bible passage today is a bit like a complex dish. Uh, it's not a mystery dish, but it's one with lots of components lots of elements. And as I was preparing today, there were so many things that I wanted to say, uh, so many things that we could say, and um, some questions that our text doesn't answer. And so I'm aware as we read over Genesis 3 that each of us might pick up on different ingredients, uh, different ideas uh, that maybe I won't speak about today. Unfortunately, this is not an elimination challenge. Uh, it doesn't mean you're wrong if I don't bring up the idea you're interested in. Uh, it's just a chance for us to continue the conversation later on. Uh, maybe a Bible study. Uh, the Bible study notes uh, for this week, they're outstanding, I think. Uh, they give plenty of detail that we'll be digging into together later this week. Or maybe it's a chance to reread the passage with a friend and to uh, get into a discussion with them about it. Uh, maybe go back and read something, uh, a book, a commentary, Bible dictionary, because this passage that we've just read, uh, this passage that describes the fall uh, or original sin, whatever you want to call it, it's a passage that is so important for us because it describes our story in the world. Each of us follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve when it comes to rebelling against God. And this passage helps us to understand who we are and why we need Jesus so much. So why don't we pray that God would speak to our hearts, uh, uh, that he would teach us this morning, uh, but they would also remind us of his grace to us in Jesus. Uh, will you pray with me? Loving Father, as we come to this part of the Bible uh, that many of us know so well, help us not to push you away, but instead help us to hear your word afresh. Will you remind us of your goodness uh, and of your authority over us and of our great need for you? Teach us about our sinfulness, but also about your great love. And we pray this in Jesus' saving name. Amen. Well, first, big idea, questioning God. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been focusing on the early chapters of the Bible. Uh, these chapters teach us about the foundations of who we are and how God has made us to live in the world. And up to this point, we've seen the goodness of God's creation. It was good. It was good. It was very good. That, that was the chorus that God spoke over everything that he'd made. But Genesis 3 begins with a serpent questioning whether everything was as good as God had said it was. 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Perhaps the first big surprise of Genesis 3 is the serpent. Where did he come from? Why can he talk? Was that normal? Was the serpent evil? And if so, how did an evil creature come to be in God's perfect and unspoiled garden? 
Well, we see the serpent through the lens of the New Testament, uh, where the serpent is identified with the devil uh, in Revelation 12 and also in chapter 20. He's called that ancient serpent called the devil uh, or Satan who leads the world astray. That's not how Adam and Eve saw the serpent. Genesis 3.1 tells us that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Crafty, yes, but he was still one of the creatures that the Lord God had made. Was the serpent evil? Well, here we're told uh, not that he was evil, but that he was crafty. Pharaoh used the same word uh, later on to describe Joseph, but in a positive sense. Joseph was discerning and wise. Uh, Same word is used for Solomon's wisdom in 1 Kings 4. And then Jesus taught his disciples as they went out on mission to be as shrewd as snakes. The same word again, and as innocent as doves in Matthew chapter 10. So was the serpent evil? Well, that's not how Genesis 3 describes him. Was he the devil? Well, looking at the text in front of us, maybe that is looking through Adam and Eve's eyes, it certainly doesn't appear so. Bible commentator David Atkinson puts it like this. In Genesis 3, the snake does not appear as the devil. The voice of temptation is not the voice of evil. If Satan is present, he is carefully masked. He is hidden in the everydayness of a creature in the garden. And that's how the voice of temptation comes to us, doesn't it? We're not usually faced with a snarling devil offering us the desires of our heart. It's usually something that appears much less dangerous, something much more tame, something much more everyday. It's in the company of friends or business partners that we find ourselves in a compromising situation, whether it's overindulgence or unhelpful conversation or an unexpected moment of connection with somebody who you find attractive. Perhaps it's temptation that comes to us in the form of good things, the desire for comfort that leads to overspending or overeating or self-medication, the desire for status that leads us to pride or to tread on others to get what we want, the desire for wealth that leads us to covetousness or greed, the desire for attention that leads us into romantic fantasies about something more or someone more. See, the voice of temptation is usually hidden in the ordinariness of our daily routines. And that's why the devil is so crafty. He hits us when our defenses are down. He questions whether there's really anything wrong with doing what we're tempted to do. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, the tempter causes us to question God's word and to question the goodness of God's word. By the way, the tempter is what Satan is called in Matthew chapter 4 while he was tempting Jesus. Uh, Jesus famously responded to the devil by uh, reminding him that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus trusted God's word. But here, the serpent undermines God's word. He sows a seed of doubt about God's word. Presumably the serpent knew what God had told Adam back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Compare that with the serpent's question in Genesis 3. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, actually, God said that they were free to eat from any tree in the garden. God gave them permission to eat to their heart's content, to eat to their fullness from any tree that they desired except for that one. Eve knew the commands. Perhaps Adam had told her. After all, Eve had not yet been formed back in Genesis 2.17 when God spoke those words to Adam. But reading in Genesis uh, 3 verse 3, it sounds like uh, Eve had heard God personally give the command. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you'll die. The verse is clear. Eve knew about the prohibition and she understood the consequences. But again, the serpent questions God's word in verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. God says one thing and the tempter says the opposite. Who do we listen to? As humans, we're good at inventing reasons for doing the wrong thing. Well, it won't hurt anybody. It's just some innocent fun. Well, I deserve this. The consequences can't be that bad, can they? The serpent tempts Eve to question God's word. And just because the Bible says so, is it really true? You know, surely an intelligent modern woman like you wouldn't believe such outdated rubbish? Surely a man like you wouldn't believe that nonsense? When all the world can see that it's okay, it's culturally normal. There are no moral absolutes. The universe won't punish you for doing what is perfectly natural. Now those are the whispers, aren't they? And sometimes they're louder than that. Undermining God's goodness. Surely a good God would give us everything we wanted. Surely if he truly wanted to bless us, he wouldn't withhold any good thing from us. Well, the whispers also God uh, undermine God's word and his promises, uh, making us question whether God is up to keeping his promises, whether God has authority to execute his promises, whether sin even matters or if it's just a man-made doctrine to keep us in line. The serpent questions God's goodness, questions God's word. He questions God's authority and he even questions God's divinity, verse 5. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent holds out the possibility that somehow humans like you and me could become like God. That God is restricting some kind of knowledge from us, keeping us as mere creatures rather than allowing us to become like himself. Well, the first step towards sin is to question God, to question God's good motives to question his good provision, his good word, his authority, his majesty. Undermine those and you're on a slippery slope. Our second big idea today is tasting evil. Eve is sold by what the serpent says. She looks at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with a new perspective. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Previously, only God had made proclamations about what was good in creation, but now Eve decides for herself what is good, 
are what she thinks blessing looks like. In eating, she makes a statement about the new right and wrong, the new moral order. These are the rules the way that I would write them. She takes and she eats and she gives some to Adam, verse 6, who was also with her, and he eats as well. Men, did you notice that? Adam stands by passively. Now, there's a word here for us. Now, somebody once said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Adam did nothing. Now, he could have done anything. He could have spoken truth. He could have rebuked the serpent, a creature whom Adam himself had named, one of the creatures that Adam and Eve were given dominion over. Adam could have done anything, but... He didn't. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that Adam wasn't deceived in 1 Timothy 2. No, Adam had no excuse for his sin. He just had an unadulterated desire for more than what God had already given him, which is ridiculous because God had already given Adam everything. Adam was already the ruler over the entire creation. But that wasn't enough for him. They both wanted what God had forbidden to them. So exactly what was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Back in Genesis 2, it's one of the two trees specifically named amongst all the other trees. Uh, by the way, back in Genesis 2.9, all of the fruit trees are described as pleasing to the eye and good for food. It's not like the fruit trees sprouted broccoli and, and only the tree of, good, of knowledge of good and evil was appealing. All, all of the trees held appealing fruit. But in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would God put this forbidden tree in the middle of the garden? Uh, some people argue that God is cruel for putting it there, tormenting and tempting the people that he created just so that he could strike them down. But that doesn't gel with the goodness of creation. If God is good and he can only act in ways that reflect his good character, then we can't see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as some kind of cruel torment, some cruel temptation. Instead, we have to see it as part of the way that God has created the world. He has given humans free will and he's given us the moral responsibility to live and act in the world and to make our own decisions. But those decisions come with consequences. Now, that's part of living in a relationship with someone else, isn't it? If we're completely selfish, if we just do what pleases us, uh, it has consequences for those around us. Being made in the image of God, our relationships were made to imitate their relationships within the Trinity. Uh, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, they're our example of how to live in community with the interests of others in mind. The son doesn't grasp at the father's role. We saw that in Philippians 2 a few weeks ago. Instead, he's happy to remain in the role of the son with no less dignity than if he'd been the father. And the same goes for the Holy Spirit. But Adam and Eve, when they had the opportunity to become like God, well, they couldn't wait for it, could they? I've said before that I grew up in the kind of private school where success is prized above all else. They practically held classes on how to push other people over on your way to the finishing line. Uh, you might have had a different experience than me. But as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we all carry the genetics of our first parents when it comes to grasping for more. 
Adam and Eve thought that they would become wise by eating from the tree. And in one sense, they did. Their eyes were opened to evil. Years ago, I was traveling in France by myself. My father had arranged for me to stay with a work colleague, somebody he'd met while they were working on a deal. I had a lovely weekend with his family and uh, their young kids until the moment I was about to leave. And the father said to me, it was nice to meet you. And his seven-year-old son's face fell immediately. Papa, c'est un inconnu, he says. Daddy, that man is a stranger. All weekend, the parents had told the kids that we were old friends. That's a white lie, perhaps. But when the boy found out, he was horrified to think that his parents had allowed a stranger into their home. Worse, perhaps, that they had lied to him. There's a moment for all of us like that, when we know good and evil. Happens in every relationship. Our parents let us down. Our kids let us down. Our friends let us down. Secrets come to light that make you question everything you thought you knew about a person. Or worse, your eyes are opened to your own capacity for evil. Now that was Adam and Eve, verse 7. Their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. A symbol of their exposure. Where previously they'd had nothing to hide, now they feel shame. They've tasted evil. They know what it is to have shame and guilt and remorse. That brings us to our third big idea, shifting blame. Adam and Eve don't just hide their nakedness, they hide from God. As if God perhaps might not notice what they've done. But the all-knowing God knows. And he confronts Adam, verse 9. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some, some of the fruit and I ate it. Adam shifts the blame in two directions. Uh, do you see it there in verse 12? The woman you put here with me. Adam blames the woman for giving him the fruit. And he blames God for giving him the woman. Adam accepts no responsibility for his own actions. He passes the blame. The woman does similarly, verse 13. The serpent deceived me and I ate. It's the serpent's fault, she claims. It strikes me how easily we shift the blame when we do something wrong. Other, other factors might well have been at play, other people, other influences. Uh, we might even blame God for our circumstances. But at the end of the day, we are each responsible for the choices that we make in this world. New Testament writer James said, When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, James finishes. It's tough preaching a sermon about sin because the world has spent thousands of years downplaying the seriousness of sin, 
Does God really say that there are consequences for the way we act? Does God even care? Why should we listen to God when there are so many fun things that we could do in life? God is a killjoy. Now that's the message that the world has been preaching about sin for thousands of years. But this passage today reminds us that sin lurks inside every one of us. It crouches at our door. Each one of us would have done the same thing that our first parents did if we were put in their place. Now, the world likes to say that people are intrinsically good and that with enough education we could eradicate evil. Brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. We all question God. We've all tasted evil. And we all shift the blame away from ourselves. We minimise sin or, or whatever you do to justify yourself. But this passage is our story as much as it's Adam's and Eve's. The, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I don't say this to induce guilt. This passage helps us understand ourselves. It helps us understand how we tick, why we're prone to anger or jealousy or greed or lust or whatever sin besets you. God doesn't give this passage to us in order to condemn us. The rest of the Bible, from the very next verse on, from Genesis 3.14, it's the story of God redeeming us from our sinful nature. It's a story which finds its fulfillment in the death of Jesus on the cross in our place, in the ultimate act of God's love for us. And we'll get to more of that next week. Genesis 3.1-13, it's a complex passage, but with a simple message. When we live apart from the way that God intended us to live, things get messed up fast. It's not good for us. It's not good for those around us. And it has serious consequences that we'll explore next week as well. But our sin is not the end of the story. God wants to fix our sin problem. He wants to restore us to the life that he created uh, for us. And it all starts for us with acknowledging our sin problem. And turning ourselves back to God. But Jesus taught us how to do that daily. Uh, to acknowledge sin and to turn back to God. And he taught it to us in the simple words that he gave to his disciples when he taught them to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Will you pray them with me as we finish? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Please join with me in prayer. Father, with humble and contrite hearts, we come before you in prayer, acknowledging our need to repent of our sin. We are sorry for our sins against you and against others. We are sorry that it was our sin that took Jesus to the cross. Thank you for Jesus' death and resurrection so that in him we have forgiveness of sin, restoration of relationship with you, the gift of the Holy Spirit and heaven to look forward to. 
Lord, help us to trust you in all things, that we would trust you that your way is best and to trust that you always know what is best for us. We ask you, Father, to help us to be obedient to your will. As a church family, Lord, we're mourning the loss of our brother in Christ, John Holder. Thank you for the joy that we have in knowing that he was your servant and is now with you in glory. We continue to pray for John's extended family as they grieve and to pray for your comfort in their lives. We ask you to lift up those who are seated in places of authority in our nation. President Trump, those representing us in the United States Senate, in the US House, in our state and our county. Father, we pray for the upcoming election, trusting that you will do your sovereign will. Help us to represent you, Lord, in the way that we speak about the candidates, the policies and the process. Give us grace, patience and wisdom as we take part in the democratic process. We bring all of these things before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Well, a challenging topic this morning. I hope uh, as we've heard God's word uh, spoken and preached and, and opened as you've kind of given yourself to that uh, reading of the scriptures, that God has actually opened your eyes to, uh, not just to good, but to uh, the, sin in our, uh, the sin in our hearts, uh, but also to his great promise of redemption. And uh, again, well, a bit of a, a difficult balance as a preacher. How do you balance uh, that? Uh, sinful nature, but also the salvation of God, I think it's really important for us to recognize our sinfulness. Uh, but as time goes on, we're going to discuss more and more uh, God's great plan to redeem us. Well, I pray that that uh, truth uh, warms your heart uh, and keeps you drawing near to God this week uh, as you do whatever it is that you do. Uh, so until we see you again, uh, goodbye and God bless. <music>